15, 16 years ago, uh, an old friend of mine, he's now in heaven, Michael Eaton, said to me, R.T., you need to do the book of Colossians. I said, well, I'm not at Westminster Chapel anymore, and that's the only church in the world where you can go through a book and take a couple years. And, and he said, well, you need to do Colossians. I said, I just don't know where I would do it. And then a year later, he said it again, you need to do Colossians. And I said, okay, maybe one day, but I don't know how I'll do it. And then Bobby Connor, you know him. He's been here. We've come here many times to hear Bobby. Two years ago, Bobby Connor said, RT, every time I look at you, I see Colossians. And so I thought, okay. So we go to England six months a year. We go back next February for six months. And so at Kensington Temple, uh, I've been doing Colossians. And we're halfway through. We're going to go back to the rest of Colossians in February. I preached uh, through Colossians at the Cove, Billy Graham Training Center. And um, so there was one verse that I felt led to speak on today from Colossians. It's a very unusual verse. There's, nothing, there's no one else like it in the, in the New Testament. Uh, and I'll try to explain it. It's, it's, it's not an easy verse to understand. It's Colossians 1.24, when Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. So may God be pleased to bless the reading and the preaching of this is most holy and infallible word. Brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray now for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus by your spirit to rest upon every mind in this place in order that their perception of what I say will be heard as you intend. Cleanse my tongue that I will be your transparent vehicle To say everything that needs to be said, nothing that doesn't need to be said. Help me to be very, very clear, very simple. Let this be a life-changing word. And for someone, a very critical word in the nick of time. May this bring great honor and glory to your name. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you received a letter from a prisoner that you'd never met, and he tells you how to sort out your life, would you listen to him? (laughs) Well, that's what we have here. Paul, in prison, in Rome, and he writes to the church at Colossae. He's never met them. Now, this is the only book in the New Testament like it, Colossians. Paul wrote Ephesians, but he'd been to Ephesus. He founded a church in Ephesus. He wrote 1 and 2 Corinthians. He'd been to Corinth. He'd been to Thessalonica, the Thessalonians. He'd been to Galatia for the Galatians. But he's not been to this church. A man by the name of Epaphras founded it. We will know more about him when we get to heaven. But now Paul feels led to write this to them. And he says, strange comment. 
I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Now, on the day of Paul's conversion, uh, you can read it, uh, Acts chapter 9, verse 16, Paul was told then that he would suffer for the Lord. Uh, Not a pleasant thing to be told on the day you get saved, but Paul always knew he would be a man of suffering. And uh, so he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And I've had this feeling today, and I said it in the first service, and so I don't know whether it's somebody in the first service or this service, I'm back here at four o'clock, but for someone today who will hear this, you are in the greatest trial of your whole life right now. You're right in the middle of it. This is a word for you. All others can just listen in. You can eavesdrop. Remember what I say, because down the road, you might need this. Now, it's not the sort of preaching that is popular. Uh, There are those, sadly, who think that if you're really serving the Lord, you'll never suffer. I wrote a book called Thorn in the Flesh. (laughs) This is awful, but a man, you'd know his name. I'm not going to tell you who it is, but he actually said, If the Apostle Paul had had my faith, he wouldn't have had a thorn in the flesh. You know, that's pretty bad. Uh, But this is for somebody. And I want us to see three things from this passage. The first, and don't be afraid of this word, predestination and suffering. Don't be afraid of the word predestination. If it weren't for that, you wouldn't be here. In fact, in Acts chapter 13, verse 48, where Luke tells about the Gentiles that came in. This was a great moment. It was all for Israel. But then now Gentiles come in. Here's what Luke said. You can read it. Acts 13, 48. As many as were ordained to eternal life believed. There are those who say, well, what he should have said, as many as believed were ordained to eternal life. That would have been true. Had he said that, but that's not what he said. He wants to make a point so that you can get no glory. As many as were ordained or some versions appointed to eternal life believed. I remember saying to my Greek teacher years ago, I said, do you realize what Luke said? He didn't say as many as believed were ordained to eternal life. He said as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. I said, you know, that's what the Greek says. You know what he said? I know that, but I disagree with Luke. How do you like that for a a Greek professor? But what God does here through us is to make us feel so helpless and unworthy. And here's a verse that you may not have noticed. It's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3, where Paul says to them, don't be upset or bowled over by these trials, you know you were destined for them. That's what he says. And the Thessalonians might have said, well, why didn't you tell us? Or Philippians 1, verse 29. It is given to us not only to believe on him, but to suffer for him. The Philippians might have said, well, thanks a lot for telling us now. Well, Paul would say, you can get out of it. If you want, you'll... But this, this is it. 
And yet, do you know, the first word, it can make a case, the first word written in the New Testament, count it pure joy when you fall into all kinds of trials. It's James chapter 1, verse 2. You say, well, no, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. James is at the end. I know. But he wrote it in 48 A.D., the first letter to be written. And his opening comment, James chapter 1, verse 2, count it all joy if you fall into all kinds of trials. So the point is, trials are good for you. Well, someone might say, well, I better go look for a trial. No, don't do that. It'll come soon enough. But what he says, the Greek says, if you fall into it. In other words, you didn't ask for it. You didn't go looking for it. You didn't make it happen. It's happened to you. He says, if that's the case, congratulations, because you have a right to count it pure joy. I don't know that it would bless anybody. If you're in a trial, I go up and say, oh, you must be glad. Uh, none of us want to hear when we're in a trial, you should count it joy. Uh, we're not in the mood for that. But that's what James says. And when he uses the word count, it's the same Greek word he uses, well, actually, Paul uses in Romans chapter 4. Those who believe on Christ, your faith counts for righteousness. And you know, when I said that in the first service, I thought to say something, and I hadn't planned to say it, but I think I'm supposed to say it in this service too. It's just a parenthetical point in my sermon. I need to ask you, do you know for sure that if you were to die today, would you go to heaven? Second question, if you stood before God, you will, and he were to ask you, he might, why should I let you into my heaven? What would your answer be? I want you to ask yourself right now, in your mind, write it down. God says, why should I let you in? And let's suppose it's really happening. It's a no-joke thing. You've got to give the right answer. Give the wrong answer, you have to go someplace else. Hell, don't go there. But what would you say? I'll come back to that. Now, here's the thing. Count it pure joy. In other words, if you're in a trial right now, it's not easy. <laughs> I didn't say it would be easy. But you count it. You impute to it. Do you know, I think one of the first times I preached here seven or eight years ago, I preached a sermon on total forgiveness. People still ask me to preach that, but I haven't preached it here for seven or eight, nine years. That was born in what was the greatest trial Louise and I ever had. It was when we were at Westminster Chapel. What happened was unfair, unjust, it was wrong, and I was bitter. How could this happen to me? But an old friend from Romania, his name is Joseph Tsung, happened to be in London, and I told him what had happened. Some of you might remember the story, and he looked at me and said, R.T., you must totally forgive them until you totally forgive them. You will be in chains. Release them, and you will be released. 
Well, nobody had ever talked to me like that in my life. It wasn't a happy word for me. If you had asked me then, would the day come that I'd be thankful for that trial, I'm not sure what I would have said. But I can tell you today, you can put me under a lie detector. It was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. Literally, the greatest, I, I cannot, I'd die a thousand deaths when I think if this hadn't happened. It was so wonderful. Now, here's the point. James is saying, if you're, you, you fall into a trial, impute joy to it, because you will one day. You don't feel like it now, but you will. And so start now, realizing that God is at the bottom of it. Well, that, that's the first thing I want to talk about predestination and suffering. But now I want to talk about the purpose of suffering. And here is a strange comment. Why should you rejoice? Well, let's put it this way. Every Christian is called to come into his or her inheritance. Some do, some don't. Now, inheritance you see, is something that the person who leaves you an inheritance, they decide whether they want to do it. For for example, I will always be my grandmother's grandson, but I displeased her a number of years ago, didn't stay in the same denomination. She didn't like that. She bought me a brand new car for my new church, took it back. And then when she wrote her will, Perhaps I'm not supposed to know this, but the man who witnessed her will told me, he said, R.T., she's leaving everything to you. But she changed her will. I was still her grandson, but I was disinherited. Same was true when my my father died. Good man. But when he died, I received zero, but I was always his son. And you see, God wants his own people to come into their inheritance. And one of the ways you come into it is accept what happens to you and say, Lord, I don't understand it. Don't know that I like it, but it's okay. And here's what Paul said. A very unusual statement. There's no one like it anywhere in the New Testament or Old Testament. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Now, what does he mean, fill up what is lacking? Well, I have to tell you, there's only one person that's ever preached on this that I know about, and that is the same Joseph Tzon, the one that I just told you about, changed my life. Well, he was living in Romania in those days. And that was when it was behind the Iron Curtain. And he happened to be in London. And I invited him to preach for me. And the people will never forget the sermon. He called the sermon, Mysterious Reasons for Suffering. And there were two points. The first was this. God allows suffering so that the angels can watch us. And he pointed to the book of Job. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but you know all the trouble that Job went through? 
Uh, don't blame the devil. You know who is at the bottom of the whole thing? God. God said, have you considered my servant Job? He said it to the devil. And the devil said, well, you've given him everything. If he loses it, he'll curse you to your face. And God said, well, let's see. And this is when Job was on trial. And the reason he was on trial, the angels had never seen a man before who had everything and lost it all. But which would curse God for it. And God said to Satan, consider Job. Here's what we learned from that. You may not like this, but if you are in a trial, God started it. And he let the devil have a go at you. And the angels are watching to see how you will turn out with Job. He had everything and lost it all. And we're told in all that happened to him, he sinned not nor charged God foolishly. And God could say, see there? Job's own wife said, curse God and die. And Job said, you, you talk like a foolish woman. And so the qu question is, as long as God gives you everything and you serve him, fine, that's understandable. What would happen if you lose it? And this was the reason for the book of Job. And the trial that someone is in now, the angels are watching. That's reason number one. Mysterious reasons for suffering. But there's a second. Not only are the angels watching, but Paul makes an astonishing point. So much suffering has been allocated to the body of Christ. A quota. A certain quantity. And this suffering is called Christ's afflictions. Pain in his body. So God is looking for people who will suffer and not complain. And I can announce this morning, there is space available. <laughs> Most people complain. Well, Paul says, I'm not complaining. I rejoice. And I don't want to be unfair. But if you're in a trial, do your best to trace the rainbow through the rain. Though you may be shaken, you need to know that God started it. And the reason is he thinks you can cope. He wouldn't have let the devil have a go at you unless he thought you can cope, cope with it and you'll one day, one day be thankful. By the way, I want to ask you this question. Has anybody asked you this before? Why should people be Christians? Do you believe people should be Christians? Your neighbor? People you work with? Your loved ones, why should they be Christians? Suppose we, we took a vote, and uh, we want to find out from you why a person should be a Christian. Well, some would say it'll help your marriage. Really? Do you know statistics are showing that those married in a church end up 50% divorced, and those married by justice of the peace 
50% divorce. It's in Britain. It's coming this way to America. So don't say Christianity is going to solve a marriage problem. You say, well, I'll tell you why they should be Christians. It'll make them happy. Really. The first person I baptized at Westminster Chapel many years ago, his name was J. Michaels. He was a Los Angeles businessman, a Jew. He had an office in London. He's on his way to Moscow. And his secretary in London went to Westminster Chapel. So she invited J. Michaels to come and hear me preach. He did. I didn't know about it for years, not years, months. I heard about it three or four months later. But that night, J. Michaels was in the congregation, and he was converted that night. I found out about it two or three months later, and then he and I became friends. Uh, We would have holidays together in the Florida Keys. I took him bone fishing. Uh, He took me out deep sea fishing, and uh, we were close friends. And one day, he said to me in a Key Largo restaurant, you ready for this? Before I became a Christian, I was a happy man. Those are his very words. Before I became a Christian, I was a happy man. Now, he's not complaining. He's just stating a fact. His wife, Jewish, wouldn't convert. His son, Al Michaels, sportscaster. You've heard him for years, many times. Jay Michaels' son, he wouldn't convert. And poor Jay was lonely. And that's what he was saying. I used to be happy. He's not complaining. The thing is, a lot of people will tell the truth. And they're supposed to act like, oh, this is so wonderful. It is wonderful. You know why it's wonderful? Because when you die, you go to heaven and not to hell. That's the reason for the gospel. That's the reason. That's why he died on the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that who believes in him should not perish. See, that's hell. You don't go to hell. That's the reason. And so Paul, in the New Testament, warns there will be suffering. By the way, would you like to hear Paul's own testimony? What Christianity has done for him? Uh, Let's just say uh, we're going to have an evangelistic service just before the preacher uh, will say, Paul, give us your testimony. And he says, okay, I will. And uh, here's what he says. And I'm reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He said, I've been imprisoned. I've had countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received the hands of the Jews, the 40 lashes, save one. And I can hear people saying now, oh, this is wonderful. Where do I sign up? I want to be a Christian now. Well, he says, there's more. You need to know. This is what Christianity has done for me. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. Oh, Paul, tell us more. I can't wait to become a Christian. This is so exciting. No, there's more. There's more. On frequent journeys. In danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness. And he says, hungry and thirsty, often without food, 
cold and exposure, and many a sleepless night. Can you believe that? You think, well, surely a saint of God like Paul, if he asked God to help him to fall asleep, he would fall asleep. Yes, Paul, many a sleepless night. Do you know what it is not to sleep? These were the days before sleeping pills. And Paul is saying, this is what I've gone through. He's not complaining. But one needs to know. You see, suffering is part of the package. And so Paul warns you. But I want to come now to the third, final point, the privilege of suffering. And uh, what Paul is letting you know that if you are one of those chosen and to fill up a place and you meet, meet the quota, uh, so, so much suffering, as we just saw, has been allocated to the body of Christ. So much suffering. Let's say that so much money has been allocated to you. You need to go to your bank tomorrow morning and claim it. <laughs> you think you'd go? I think you would. Well, now, there's so much suffering allocated to the body of Christ. And you may say, well, don't let me in on that. But here's the thing. Here is something you need to know. The greater the suffering, the greater the anointing. You know, I asked uh, Jeff in the first service, do you have many people ask for your anointing? Uh, I get that once in a while. People want me to Give him my anointing. And I said, sure, you can have it. Let me pray for you. God, may he give it to you. But that's the easy way. You see, we all want it that way. If I gave an appeal at the end and say, all those who want a greater anointing, come down this aisle and I'll lay hands on you. Um, all who want it through suffering, come down this aisle. <laughs> now, I don't claim to have a great anointing. I've got a bit of an anointing. But I can tell you, if I do have any anointing, it has not come through the laying on of hands. I'm not against that. In fact, I'm into it. I pray for people. John Arnott, first time I came to this church to hear John Arnott. I've had the greatest of the lot praying for me. From Rodney Howard Brown, you name him. Dr. Mark Lloyd-Jones, Billy Graham. And I've had a hundred pray for me. And I don't rule out that God used that. But not consciously. I never got anything consciously when they prayed for me. What anointing I have is come through suffering. And you've no idea. It wasn't easy. But the greater the suffering, the greater the anointing. And so God has determined that so much suffering is allocated to the body of Christ. And if you are tapped on the shoulder, ooh, it's such a privilege. It ain't fun, but such a privilege. You know, the worst trial of our lives, the worst trial is when we had to forgive. If you do Ask me then, would I rejoice in that? I can tell you now what Louise and I went through. Best thing that ever happened to us. I cannot tell you how thankful I am. And so, whatever somebody is going through, just (laughs) God has 
blessed you. You don't realize it at the moment. Uh, Here's a verse that whenever I read it, I come sometimes to tears. It's when Peter and John were punished by the Sanhedrin, and they were, they were beaten. And when they left the council, it says, Acts 5.41, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the shame of his name. <laughs> you know, most of us don't want any shame. We want a good reputation. The worst reputation you could have, you're a follower of Jesus. You see, here's what happened. This is why they were so excited. Six weeks before, Peter and John had denied the Lord. John was part of the bunch that wouldn't follow Jesus for a while. He came back on a good Friday. As for Peter, he denied knowing the Lord. And he was so ashamed. He was so ashamed. And he said, Lord, if you give me one more chance, one more chance, I will show you that I will suffer for you. And when Peter and John left the council, you can read it. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer the shame of his name. Not all get that. (laughs) They couldn't believe their luck that they got to suffer. You see, when Peter had failed the Lord, he felt so awful. He felt terrible. He said, Lord... Give me one more chance and I'll show you. And I'm wondering if there's someone here. You let the Lord down and you know it. And you are so sorry. You're so ashamed. And you're saying, Lord, give me one more chance. So God is saying to you today, will you accept whatever he puts in your path. And so it wouldn't matter what kind of trial, financial, physical, health, pain, any kind of suffering. The highest level perhaps is persecution. We don't get that much today, but maybe one day we will. But Jesus said, he that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. So if he puts you through any kind of trial and you rejoice in it, God says, hmm, you just might qualify for the big leagues. And that's what Peter and John went through. My mother, when she was a teenager, back in Springfield, Illinois, sat at the feet of a 90-year-old saint who would tell stories. And the teenagers loved her. But one day, this 90-year-old saint said, I've been serving the Lord for so long now that I can hardly tell the difference between a blessing and a trial. Think about that. Well, here's a name you will not have heard. Anybody here know Henry Morrison? Henry Morrison? Well, you wouldn't because he lived a hundred years ago. He was a Baptist missionary in Africa. You can, you can Google him. For 40 years, he and his wife had been missionaries in Africa, but they decided it was time to retire. 
And so they sent a couple letters to friends in America to say, we'll be coming into New York on a certain date. And so the day came. They had 40 years in Africa. They're on the ship. It's coming into the New York Harbor. And Henry Morrison, he's got his luggage here and his wife. And they're hoping to be first off the ship. But they noticed as they were coming in, a band was playing. And he looked at his wife. He said, oh, they're making a fuss over us. They shouldn't have done this. They, they shouldn't have done it. But of course, they were so excited and they were all ready to go. And as they got ready to go down the, dang, the gangplank, a policeman said, stop here, sir. Oh, he put his bags down. It turns out that President Theodore Roosevelt was on the same ship. He had been game hunting in Africa for three weeks. The band was for him. And as it turned out, Henry Morrison was the last off the ship. He comes down the gangplank, he puts his luggage down, and he looks. Not a soul there to meet him. They make their way three blocks over to a third-rate hotel. He falls on the bed weeping. He says, God, I serve you for 40 years in Africa. And I come home, and there's nobody here. President Roosevelt, three weeks game hunting, he comes home, and a band is playing. But then the Lord spoke clearly these words. But you're not home yet. Paul said, I reckon that the sufferings of this present life are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall follow. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. But before I close, do you remember when I asked you just a few moments ago, what would you say to God if he said to you, why should I let you into my heaven? You remember what you thought in your mind? If you wrote down in your mind anything other, anything other than because Jesus died for me, or I'm trusting the blood of Jesus. But if you wrote something down like I've tried to live a good life, I've done this, I've done that, I wouldn't want to be in your shoes for anything in the world. But if you didn't say, because of Jesus dying for me, we can sort that out right now. I can lead us in a prayer. You can say it in your heart. You don't need to say it out loud. You don't even need to close your eyes. But if you wrote the wrong thing down or you had the wrong thought, you need to pray this prayer right now. Lord Jesus, I need you. I want you. I'm sorry for my sins. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Wash my sins away by your blood. As best as I know how, I give you my life. That's it. Did you pray that prayer? Did you?
Are you ashamed that you prayed that prayer? Why do you ask, R.T.? Because Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. He also said, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father. And just before I leave the platform, I want to say this. If you prayed that prayer, and are not ashamed of it, in the next 20 seconds, I'm going to ask you to stand up. Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I'm not going to make ask you to make a speech, but that will just show that you prayed the prayer. Five, four, three, two, one. You prayed that prayer, stand up, wherever you are. There's one. There's another. Another. Anyone else? Anyone else? Beautiful. I'm finished.